A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 40. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 14. Carrasco to Abu Simbel, Part 1. It so happened that we arrived at Carrasco on the eve of El Eid el Kheber, or the anniversary of the sacrifice of Abraham, when, according to the Muslim version, Ishmael was the intended victim, and a ram the substituted offering. Now, El Eid el Kheber, being one of the great feasts of the Mohammedan calendar, is a day of gifts and good wishes. The rich visit their friends and distribute meat to the poor, and every true believer goes to the mosque to say his prayers in the morning. So instead of starting as usual at sunrise, we treated our sailors to a sheep, and waited till past noon that they might make holiday. They began the day by trooping off to the village mosque in all the glory of new blue blouses, spotless turbans, and scarlet leather slippers, then loitered about till dinner-time, when the said sheep, stewed with lentils and garlic, brought the festivities to an end. It was a thin and ancient beast, and must have been horribly tough, but an epicure might have envied the childlike enjoyment with which our honest fellows squatted, cross-legged and happy, round the smoking cauldron, chattering, laughing, feasting, dipping their fingers in the common mess, washing the whole down with long draughts of Nile-water, and finishing off with a hubble-bubble passed from lip to lip, and a mouthful of muddy coffee. By a little after midday they had put off their finery, harnessed themselves to the tow-rope, and set to work to haul us through the rocky shoals which here impede the current. From Carrasco to Dare the actual distance is about eleven miles and a half, but what with obstructions in the bed of the river, and what with a wind that would have been favourable but for another great bend which the Nile takes towards the east, those eleven miles and a half cost us the best part of two days' hard tracking. Landing from time to time, when the boat was close inshore, we found the order of planting everywhere the same, lupins and lentils on the slope against the water-line, an uninterrupted grove of palms on the edge of the bank, in the space beyond, fields of cotton and young corn, and then the desert. The arable soil was divided off, as usual, by hundreds of water-channels, and seemed to be excellently farmed as well as abundantly irrigated. Not a weed was to be seen, not an inch of soil appeared to be wasted. In odd corners where there was room for nothing else, cucumbers and vegetable marrows flourished and bore fruit. Nowhere had we seen castor berries so large, cotton pods so full, or palms so lofty. Here also, for the first time in Egypt, we observed among the bushes a few hoopoes and other small birds, and on a sand slope down by the river a group of wild ducks. We, that is to say, one of the M.B.s and the writer, had wandered off that way in search of crocodiles. The two dahabias, each with its file of trackers, were slowly laboring up against the current about a mile away. All was intensely hot and intensely silent. We had walked far and had seen no crocodile. What we should have done if we had met with one I am not prepared to say. Perhaps we should have run away. At all events, we were just about to turn back when we caught sight of the ducks sunning themselves, half asleep, on the brink of a tiny pool about an eighth of a mile away. Creeping cautiously under the bank, we contrived to get within a few yards of them. There were four, a drake, a duck, and two young ones, exquisitely feathered and as small as teal. The parent birds could scarcely have measured more than eight inches from head to tail. 
All alike had chestnut-colored heads with a narrow buff stripe down the middle, like a parting, maroon backs, wing feathers maroon and gray, and tails tipped with buff. They were so pretty, and the little family party was so complete, that the writer could not help secretly rejoicing that Alfred and his gun were safe on board the bagstones. High above the Libyan bank on the sloping verge of the desert stands, half-drowned in sand, the little temple of Amada. Seeing it from the opposite side while duck-hunting in the morning, I had taken it for one of the many stone shelters erected by Mohammed Ali for the accommodation of cattle levied annually in the Sudan. It proved, however, to be a temple, small but massive, built with squared blocks of sandstone and dating back to the very old times of the Usertesans and Tutmoses. It consists of a portico, a transverse atrium, and three small chambers. The pillars of the portico are mere square piers. The rooms are small and low. The roof, constructed of oblong blocks, is flat from end to end. As an architectural structure, it is in fact but a few degrees removed from Stonehenge. A shed without, this little temple is, however, a cameo within. Nowhere save in the tomb of tea had we seen bas-reliefs so delicately modelled, so rich in colour. Here, as elsewhere, the walls are covered with groups of kings and gods and hieroglyphic texts. The figures are slender and animated. The head-dresses, jewellery, and patterned robes are elaborately drawn and painted. Every head looks like a portrait, every hieroglyphic form is a study in miniature. Apart from its exquisite finish, the wall-sculpture of Amada has, however, nothing in common with the wall-sculpture of the ancient empire. It belongs to the period of Egyptian Renaissance, and, though inferior in power and naturalness to the work of the elder school, it marks just that moment of special development when the art of modelling in low relief had touched the highest level to which it ever again attained. The highest level belongs to the reigns of Thutmose II and Thutmose III, just as the perfect era in architecture belongs to the reigns of Seti I and Ramesses II. It is for this reason that Amada is so precious. It registers an epoch in the history of the art, and gives us the best of that epoch in the hour of its zenith. The sculptor is here seen to be working within bounds already prescribed, yet within those bounds he still enjoys a certain liberty. His art, though largely conventionalized, is not yet stereotyped. His sense of beauty still finds expression. There is, in short, a grace and sweetness about the bas-relief designs of Amada for which one looks in vain to the storied walls of Karnak. The chambers are half-choked with sand, and we had to crawl into the sanctuary upon our hands and knees. A long inscription at the upper end records how Amenhotep II, returning from his first campaign against the Rutan, slew seven kings with his own hand, six of whom were gibbeted upon the ramparts of Thebes, while the body of the seventh was sent to Ethiopia by water and suspended on the outer wall of the city of Napata, in order that the negroes might behold the victories of the pharaoh in all the lands of the world." In the darkest corner of the atrium we observed a curious tableau representing the king embraced by a goddess. He holds a short straight sword in his right hand, and the crooks ansada in his left. On his head he wears the kephersh, or war-helmet, a kind of blue meter studded with gold stars and ornamented with the royal asp. The goddess clasps him lovingly about the neck, and bends her lips to his. The artist has given her the yellow complexion conventionally ascribed to women, 
but her saucy mouth and nez retroussé are distinctly European. Dressed in the fashion of the nineteenth century, she might have served Leech as a model for his girl of the period. The sand has drifted so high at the back of the temple that one steps upon the roof as upon a terrace only just raised above the level of the desert. Soon that level will be equal, and if nothing is done to rescue it within the next generation or two, the whole building will become engulfed and its very site forgotten. The view from the roof, looking back towards Carrasco and forward towards Dare, is one of the finest, perhaps quite the finest in Nubia. The Nile curves grandly through the foreground. The palm woods of Dare are green in the distance. The mountain region which we have just traversed ranges, a vast crescent of multitudinous peaks, round two-thirds of the horizon. Ridge beyond ridge, chain beyond chain, flushing crimson in light and deepening through every tint of amethyst and purple in shadow, these innumerable summits fade into tenderest blue upon the horizon. As the sun sets, they seem to glow, to become incandescent, to be touched with flame, as in the old time when every crater was a font of fire. Struggling next morning through a maze of sandbanks, we reached Dare soon after breakfast. This town, the Nubian capital, lies a little lower than the level of the bank, so that only a few mud walls are visible from the river. Having learned by this time that a capital is but a bigger village, containing perhaps a mosque and a market-space, we were not disappointed by the unimposing aspect of the Nubian metropolis. Great, however, was our surprise when, instead of the usual clamorous crowd, screaming, pushing, scrambling, and bothering for bakshish, we found the landing-place deserted. Two or three native boats lay up under the bank, empty. There was literally not a soul in sight. L. and the little lady, eager to buy some of the basket-work for which the place is famous, looked blank. Ptolemy, anxious to lay in a store of fresh eggs and vegetables, looked blanker. We landed. Before us lay an open space, at the farther end of which, facing the river, stood the governor's palace, the said palace being a magnified mud-hut, with the frieze of baked bricks round the top, and an imposing stone doorway. In this doorway, according to immemorial usage, the great man gives audience. We saw him, a mere youth apparently, puffing away at a long shibuk, in the midst of a little group of grey-beard elders. They looked at us gravely, immovably, like smoking automata. One longed to go up and ask them if they were all transformed to black granite from the waist to the feet, and if the inhabitants of Dare had been changed into bluestones. Still bent on buying baskets, if baskets were to be bought, bent also on finding out the whereabouts of a certain rock-cut temple which our books told us to look for at the back of the town, we turned aside into a straggling street leading towards the desert. The houses looked better built than usual, some panes having evidently been bestowed in smoothing the surface of the mud, and ornamenting the doorways with fragments of coloured pottery. A cracked willow-pattern dinner-plate, set like a fanlight over one, and a white soup-plate over another, came doubtless from the canteen of some English dahabia and were the pride of their possessors. Looking from end to end of this street, and it was a tolerably long one, with the Nile at one end and the desert at the other, we saw no sign or shadow of moving creature. Only one young woman, hearing strange voices talking in a strange tongue, peeped out suddenly from a half-open door as we went by, 
then, seeing me look at the baby in her arms, which was hideous and had sore eyes, drew her veil across its face and darted back again. She thought I coveted her treasure, and she dreaded the evil eye. All at once we heard a sound like the far-off quivering of many owls. It shrilled, swelled, wavered, dropped, then died away, like the moaning of the wind at sea. We held our breath and listened. We had never heard anything so wild and plaintive. Then suddenly, through an opening between the houses, we saw a great crowd on a space of rising ground about a quarter of a mile away. This crowd consisted of men only, a close, turbaned mass some three or four hundred in number, all standing quite still and silent, all looking in the same direction. Hurrying on to the desert, we saw the strange sight at which they were looking. End of section 40